My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds I keep covering up the sun. What are you going to do next? And I thought, what do you mean? I just got him help. And she's like, no, you kept him safe. Mm. What are you going to do next? And that was surprising to me at the time. We call it a grieving process. I think we all grieved in different ways, Jake as well. But sure. I'll just speak about Brad and I, like, uh, you know, grieved what we thought his life was going to be for him, grieved the fact that he wanted it so badly, he went back and got it again, and his mental illness would not allow him to go there was heartbreaking. I think most people would probably be happier if I wasn't around. And I can remember looking at a tree thinking, I just need to drive into that and just be done because everyone will be so much happier if I'm not around. My hope is that through being willing to share more and talk about it more um, is going to help other people go, just like you said, okay, if, if, if you had everything, Appearances look like you got it all figured out, mm-hmm. and yet you are still in that spot. It, it can be anybody. If we have to weigh the two, the pain of having to leave your child and walking away and, and essentially leaving your child in the care of complete strangers right. or having to plan a funeral, mm-hmm. it's a lot better to have to walk away and leave them in the care of strangers at that point. I think the overarching goal of parenting needs to be to help empower our kids to when they leave our home, not just survive, but to thrive. Mm. I realize now that there were some situational environmental factors, and maybe that's influenced why I'm more anxious in general, but I still feel anxiety. And moving me from one situation to another does not change who I am. And now I'm much more comfortable that she knows the things that help her and the things that don't. And I'm much more trusting that she's at a point in her maturity that she knows how to use those and what she needs. And I'm better at saying, how can I help? And listening where I used to be more like, well, here's an idea. And she doesn't always want an idea. So I have to make sure she's asking for the idea and not, because as an adult, I wouldn't want somebody saying, this is what you need to do. If all I wanted to do was vent or have somebody listen to me. 80% of teens are checking their phone when they're supposed to be sleeping. If we can get devices out of kids' bedrooms, it's one of the most powerful things that I think we can do as parents to help protect their sleep, protect them from when they're most vulnerable. The most valuable thing I have with my child is a relationship. Yes. Uh, We have a slogan, you matter right here, right now. And that's a powerful statement because what it means is to as a dad to your kids, your loved ones, to friends and community, I'm going to show up. I'm going to be there no matter what's going on, no matter what's going down. I'm going to be present. And I think so many times dads are looking for an invitation and wondering if they fit or maybe thinking that they don't fit. And what Father's Club says, we're done with that noise. 
We need to be engaged. We need to be participants in our own kids' lives, in the community, and with other dads to make a difference. It is a movement, is my hope, of or an awakeness of dads to say, I'm not perfect. My family's not perfect. My situation isn't perfect. I don't need to put up this false front. I call it the tissue paper wall because the second that there's that transparency, braid transparency, the second that there's transparency in a dad's like, oh, you're dealing with this too in your job and your marriage and your work and your whatever, right? All of a sudden, boom, that trans, that, that, that tissue paper wall is busted through and here they come. And just act like everything was okay when it wasn't. And people didn't know what to say. So many people said nothing, which I completely understand. Um, it is hard to know what to say to someone when they've lost someone and especially a child. But people would just smile at me and, hi, hi, how are you? And, you know, I'm, I'm terrible. I mean, do you really want to know how I am? I, you know, I think people always think, oh, I don't want to say anything and reminder of it. Well, I'm reminded of it every day. There's never a time that I don't think of Nick each day. And um, so for people to remember him and people to say something was so special. And so I think that's something that I would love everybody to know is, Talk about it. Say the person's name. You know, even if it's just, I know that you're missing Nick today, and I'm thinking about you this Christmas season, or whatever, you know, it may be. Um, just acknowledging that loss. You know, I think the hardest thing is that we can't control our children. And, you know, we're used to being mamas, and we want to protect them, and we want to do everything we can for our children, but we can't save them. And that is the very hardest thing is to recognize that we're not in control of their life. And so I I think I would say live for each day and enjoy each day and recognize that there isn't anything that you can do to change what they are or they aren't going to do. And to enjoy what you have in front of you today. The hardest decision decisions that I made as a mom were the best decisions to save my child. And that's referring to my to my younger son. Um, so I think it's so many times I wanted to make everything easy. You want to make it easy for your child. You want everything to be perfect. And I had to recognize that some of the hardest things that our children have to endure are probably the best. And that trying to make it okay and trying to make everything happy and wonderful is not exactly what they need. We're all interested in having students be successful in the classroom, but it foundationally needs to start with people being safe and people being well. And if that's not happening, who really cares about the classroom? I would say from an administrative perspective, there are times that when a student is navigating a difficult mental health situation that, um, what what sometimes gets lost in the interaction between family members and the student and the administration is the key importance of people being safe and people being healthy and that's that's got to be the starting point and if you're not hearing that theme from a college or university that you're considering then you, you should think twice. One morning, it was in September um, of 2019, I went down into his bedroom 
Um, I was like, I have to go to work. Why are you still in bed? You're supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to be up. You've got to get ready. You've got to go to school. He wasn't talking. I mean, nothing was coming out of him. He had this glazed over blank look on his face and he was just laying there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was, it was so scary. There was some sort of crisis. He, they were concerned for his well-being and that the police were there. That was all I knew at this point. So for about an hour, I was just waiting in the middle of the night. I'm like, no, I'm, oh my I'm like, I'm driving there. I'm driving there. And um, the I, I got a phone call from the police officer that said, I'm in the car now with Anthony and Roscoe. <laughs> oh. And she said, um, Anthony is, he was very nice when we got in there. He's having um, some suicidal ideation. So we're taking him to the crisis center. I think people don't realize this, but they'll make the mistake and they'll say something like, oh, I'm I'm bipolar. And she said, don't say that because that's not who you are. Mm -hmm. You have bipolar. And I think once we all, you know, just because my family and just friends and everything, once they realize that you say, he has this. It's not who he is. It does not define him. That coffee that we went to on a Saturday <laughs> and it had a three hour, you know, just heart to heart discussion became two moms that had a common mission. We had kids that we we believed and they genuinely were great kids, well-adjusted kids that made this horrific decision so impulsively and we decided well what what can we do what can we do to put things in place resources in place so that these kids spend 20 minutes remembering all the reasons they have to live rather than the ways to take their own life we have to tell parents like that they're normal air quote normal kids are at just as much risk as those kids who are currently in therapy because life is going to knock you down. It's just how it works. They're going to get knocked down. It's part of growing. And Those ideas came together where we figured we had to populate this idea that kids make this impulsive decision and we had to give them tools and resources to get through those 20 minutes of darkness. So we go through and do, you know, different activities with them so that they can, you know, get through those dark moments. And then they make the life box where they put all these pictures and inspirational sayings and their dreams for the future in this box. And so that they can look at it when they're having those challenging moments. The options are jail or the emergency room. And the emergency room, they're not equipped to handle somebody in a mental health crisis. So it's oftentimes jail. And we were even told sometimes we'll come up with the charge because we need to to send this person somewhere. To change things systemically. And we what we know is that one person, one one faith organization can't do it on their own. It takes a larger voice. 
It takes the voice of many people. And so that is what we're working to do. Welcome to season three of the Just a Mom podcast. You just finished listening to a brief recap of season two. If you are a new listener to the Just a Mom podcast, you might want to go back and start with season one, episode one. However, most episodes stand alone, so you can start here if you want. As we enter season three of the Just a Mom podcast, I'm reminded of how thankful I am to all of the Just a Mom podcast guests, those who have entrusted me with their deeply personal and vulnerable stories, and the mental health professionals and organizations who've been so generous with their time and knowledge. If you would like to be considered as a guest on the Just a Mom podcast, please go to our website at www.thejustamompodcast.com. Also, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the Just a Mom podcast wherever you listen, so that will help other people be able to find the podcast more easily. Without further ado, here is the first episode of Season 3 of the Just a Mom podcast. On this episode of the Just a Mom podcast, I am very honored and thrilled to be joined by Rhonda. Hi, Rhonda. Hey, Susie. I've known Rhonda for actually a number of years, and ironically, knew a little bit about Rhonda's story, but about a week ago, saw something that she posted on Facebook, and this is one of those instances where I feel like Facebook and social media was a really good thing because I read what Rhonda had posted. And after I read it, I thought I would really love for Rhonda to consider being a guest on the Just a Mom podcast. So I reached out to her and here she is. So thank you again. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Well, I am really happy to have you here and really excited to share your story with the Just a Mom listeners, because I think what you have experienced as a mom is far more common than most of us realize or acknowledge. I would agree with that. Would you just start by telling us a little bit about your family? Yes. I have two sons. I have uh, one son who's 31, and uh, my son Sam is 27, and Sam is the one who is a recovering addict. Okay. Talk to us a little bit about how his journey as an, as an addict started. Well, uh, Sam was a pretty normal teenager, but we started to know there were some things going on and we just could not connect the dots for his senior year, junior year, senior year of high school. He uh, played a lot of sports. He was very involved with school. He was a good student, but he started to change friendship groups. He started to dabble in drugs a little bit. Uh, we knew he was selling K2 at one time. He had two DUIs. I mean, some of this is typical kind of teenage behavior at the time. He also came down with a serious eating disorder. Uh, We took him to psychiatrists, psychologists, nutritionists. We tried everything. I did drug testing. We put a GPS on his phone to track. He was skipping classes. His grades started to drop dramatically. Um, We just couldn't connect the dots. Uh, He decided he did not want to go into a 
um, a clinic in Denver for eating disorders, and he was 18 years old. So at that time, as a parent, you really don't have control over what your child wants to do. They are in control of their own life. He wanted to go on to college. So he wanted to go to University of Arkansas, where his brother was. And so we told him, if you want to go, you have to make your grades. You needed a minimum uh, in order to get in-state tuition. And imagine that he was able to pull those grades up in one semester. We knew he was smart. So he went on to college, and he, uh, after his senior year of college, he was starting his senior year, when we found out he had a serious drug problem, he had been handling a fentanyl addiction for three and a half years while he was in college. Wow. And you had no idea about the fentanyl? No, we did not. Let's back up to when he was in high school, because that's when it started, right? That is correct. How old do you think he was, or has he told you at this point when he first tried drugs? Or Sam was experimenting with weed and uh, alcohol at the age of 15. He also was on ADHD medication, which he was abusing along with uh, the other things. We did find out that my older son had a surgery, and this is, this is huge. This is when a lot of drug addiction does start. Uh, he had some, some pills, and I'm sure it was probably Oxycontin at the time, for his, for his surgery. And, of course, Sam was looking for things, and he found it. And Sam, if you hear his story, will tell you it was just amazing, the experience he had from taking one pill. He had uh, no anxiety. He felt freedom. He felt like he had never felt before. That is when his journey started to continue to find more drugs to make him feel like that. From what I understand, that is a very common thing for kids to rifle through, you know, yes. the medicine cabinet or whatever and find old narcotics yes. of a family member. Yes, that and, is correct. And, and at that point, he was how old? I would guess he was probably 16, okay. 17, somewhere in that line. And you said he had been you know, messing in marijuana and um, alcohol. Were you aware of that at the time? Had you caught him? Yes. Well, we found the K2, uh, so we knew he was, he was experimenting with drugs. I knew he had a lighter that he carried around. Um, so, yes, as a parent, you kind of know they're doing that. Did we ever catch him with any of those drugs? No. But, you know, we even drug tested him. We, we tried everything we could, and no, we, d we didn't know much. And for our listeners, would you talk about K2? Because some people yes. might not know what that is. K2 at the time was something you could buy in a quick trip on the Missouri side, not on the Kansas side, on the Missouri side. And kids were using it as a hallucinating drug, and then it even got smoked. I mean, there were a lot of different ways kids were using it. It was a step beyond pot. It gave you a little bit more of a LSD or a little bit more of a, of a drug reaction like okay. that. Okay. So there were a lot of kids. It was free. I mean, I mean it was free to, find, to use it. I mean, it wasn't it illegal. It wasn't illegal. I, free yeah. isn't the right word, but... Right. <laughs> no, but, you know, pot at that time, marijuana was illegal. That's Obviously, right. Obviously, alcohol was illegal. And K2 you could buy at a quick trip. And what I'm thinking, if he's 27, were vape 
pens really a thing then? Probably not. Or maybe no, just they starting? Were. Okay. They were. He never really got into that. There were a lot of kids when he was in recovery that would vape because that's the was less evil. But there was also some very strong vape out available that also gave that same hallucinogenic kind of reaction. Right. That's why I asked because Again, I'm not a professional. I'm not a counselor. I'm just a mom. But from what I understand, a lot of the vaping that kids are doing now does include other things besides just the vape juice. That is correct. So you probably know a lot more about that than I do. I don't know. Well, I don't know much about that arena. I do know enough about the opioids and heroin and some of those things. So, yeah, let's kind of... Let's jump into that. Um, when you found out at this at the end of his college career, his senior year, and so he was about to graduate. He here, I'll tell you the story. He was uh, it was his last semester or his first semester of his senior okay. year. So in a no, November time frame, Steve's my husband Steve's father passed away, and uh, we had a funeral. And Sam came home with his brother to be pallbearers. Uh, when we went to the church and were getting ready, we knew something was wrong. Sam was a zombie. He looked like death warmed over. He was sweating. He was had glassy eyes. He didn't look himself at all. He just looked sick. Um, he proceeded to disrupt the entire funeral by getting up multiple times to go into the bathroom. What we didn't know is he was injecting more drugs. Uh, at the time, he was going through withdrawal symptoms. That's what the look we saw was, was withdrawal. Uh, when we were done with the funeral, my older son wanted to share a picture with me that he had taken, and it was a picture of a hypodermic needle that was laying out on our ottoman in our lower level. So at that point, we knew uh, we had a drug problem going on, and we tried to have an intervention I'd only seen interventions on TV, didn't really know what we were doing, but we tried to have an intervention. And he admitted he had, uh, we was using drugs, but he said he could manage it. And he had been managing it for four years. And it got out of control at the funeral is what he proceeded to tell us. And he could continue to manage it. And no, he was not going to go into rehab. He was so close to finishing school, he was going to go back and finish school. Uh... I told him that I wanted him to see a drug counselor of some kind uh, in Fayetteville. And he basically said, Mom, go ahead, give me, a, give me an appointment, I'll go. So he turned, went back to school. This is one of my God moments that I talk about. I picked up the phone, and you know how it is when you call a university. You're never going to get a live person. You're going to get passed around multiple times to somebody or get a message that you need to call somebody back or they're going to call you back. Anyway, I got a live person. I called the drug abuse hotline, and I got a counselor there, and I said, Mary, and of course I started crying, and I said, my son is a drug addict, and he's a student here, and I'm really afraid he is in deep trouble and he needs help. And she said, can you have him here at 1 o'clock? And I said, I'll get him there. I called my daughter-in-law, who's working, and said, can you go get Sam, and can you take him there? Because he wasn't answering his phone, I knew he wouldn't make the trip himself. 
She drug him up there. Um, Mary took one look at him and called 911, and they took him in to the ER. Wow. Um, so we got the call from the ER doctor, and we drove the three and a half hours to Fayetteville to pick him up. And the ER doctor told us that we, he was lucky to be alive because he had so much fentanyl in his system to kill him. So that's when our journey started with rehabs. Wow. What was that like when you got the call from the ER doctor? Well, it's, you know, it's frightening. Um, he could have died. I mean, you just, you know, it, it's, it's frightening as a parent because then you realize, you know, you've got to do something. And again, one of those moments of not really knowing, not prepared, knowing nowhere to call, having no... Uh, no support structure to call and say, what do I do now? Right. Where do I go? What do I do? I've got this fentanyl addict. They tell me I need to have him in a rehab in two days. And he's struggling and he's going through withdrawal and all of these things. And and he was now in our home and he'd been at school for four years. And so, yes. So again, we, 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 I, I'm, I'm on my knees uh, praying, God, help me, help me figure out where to take this child. What do I do with him? Where do I go? And at this point, had he overcome or recovered from his eating disorder? Because we didn't really dive into that, but he refused to go to right. a treatment facility for the eating disorder. Did that resolve on its own? Uh, apparently so. I it, it, It's all kind of fuzzy for me. He was doing that along with the drugs, and so they kind of went hand in hand from a control uh, function when, when, you're, when you're depressed, as you know. When mental illness hits, you do everything you can to self-medicate, and then you try to control. And addiction is all about control. So if you can control your weight, he was also controlling his weight with drugs at the same time. So it was a drug addiction as well as being an addict as well as eating disorder it was all wrapped in one. When we went into rehabs and we went to two, um, the first one uh, we went to in Minnesota was Betty Ford Clinic, Hazelden, we went to. And they told us, uh, we, we met with a lot of the other kids. We had a session where we had a parent session and we met with a bunch of the other kids that were uh, there being treated for addiction. And eating disorder is very common and it's typically more common with girls than it is boys. But come to find out, a lot of addicts also have eating disorders. They go hand in hand. I did not know that. That's very interesting. Yes. Do you feel like the eating disorder started before the addiction? I think it was all wrapped together. Kind of all in tandem. Yes. And you mentioned anxiety as well mm -hmm. and ADHD. So he had dealt with some mental health issues most of his life. Or? I would say he probably he probably was. Um, when you talk to him now and he tells his story, which he does, and he has, um, we can go into that later. He, he he's tried to help other people as well with his story, but he talks about not being. He was at the point of almost self loathing when we finally got him into a second rehab. He was severely um, depressed, did not like who he was. And when you stick a needle in your arm, not knowing what the substance is, you are, in essence, almost committing suicide 
it is very similar because you are toying with it. You are so unhappy, you don't know quite what to do. So you're at that point of your life. Yeah, looking for a way out. And a way to feel better. Yeah, a way to end the pain. That's right. That's a very similar. It is. um, From what I understand from people who have dealt with suicidal ideation or attempts that they have said they just were trying to end the pain. Exactly. And my son was in that pain. Mm -hmm. And no, we did not know that. Mm -hmm. His first time in rehab at Hazleton, how long was he there? It is. It was a inpatient facility, so typically that that type of uh, center will keep you there for thirty days, and then they release you, and that's what Sam was. Sam was there for thirty days, supposedly graduated. Uh, they moved him into a work program where he stayed in a dormitory and worked, and then also attended meetings and counseling. His first paycheck, he and another young man that he had made quite good friends with, who was also a junkie, and I hate to say that word, but a junkie is a heroin addict. He met up with another young man, their first paycheck. They went out and bought more drugs and started using again. So we did not know any of this, and I obviously Hazleton did not either. Mm-hmm. So they were, drug- they were using their drugs, and back they had not really been rehabilitated. Do you think he was using drugs during the 30-day period? No, no there wasn't any way. He, okay. was under, he was under kind of a lockdown situation, okay. um, and they were, they were monitoring their behavior. They were so in so, such a lockdown. Sure. I, no, I don't believe so. And then the second phase, which is a step-down type of a phase, right. is, is when they, that started their first paycheck. And do you know what drug he did? Well, he was buying, I know he was buying heroin. I mean, that's his story because it was so readily available. And once he got back to Kansas City, which he did, and went to a halfway house and was making pretty good money at a job, he was back using fentanyl again. My son was very creative in that he found fentanyl on the dark web. There's a dark web, uh, black web under different names, and it was coming from China and being shipped over. So he was waiting for FedEx packets and so forth to receive the drugs. And um, yeah, he was into Bitcoin. He could convert Bitcoin and then buy, buy these things directly from China. At this point, had he graduated from college because he no. left college to go to rehab, so he, he had not completed oh, college? No, he had a semester left. Okay. So... Uh, no, so he came back to work, and um, we discovered he needed to go back in a second rehab. And he was living in your home? No, not no. at that time. Okay. He was in a halfway house. Oh, that's right. You said that. I'm he sorry. was in a halfway house, and um, long story short, uh, he was t- telling me he was not attending meetings because he didn't like uh, there weren't any young people in these meetings. The halfway house he lived in, an old man shared a room with him. And this is, this is my, my son's uh, comments. And I worried then that how could he stay recovered if he wasn't connected with people his own age? So I actively looked for a place or some way to help him find a recovery group that he could be in that had young people. And I had a man come to my house. Uh, This is another one of my God moments, 
who was representing the Shatterproof Organization, which was an organization to try to end the stigma associated with addiction. And he wanted me to start up a team and help support this cause. And he proceeded to tell me that the reason he had gotten involved with this was his son um, was similar to my son's age and had died of a heroin overdose two years prior. So I was touched by his story. He came to my home, and he was asking me about my son. And I proceeded to tell him, you know, Sam's in a halfway house. He's he's not really connecting with any uh, group and not going to meetings. And I'm trying to find a, a young people's recovery group or someplace where he can connect with other sober young people. And he hands me a card, and he said, well, I just met with this counselor earlier today, and um, I don't know anything about him, but there's a lot of young people there. You might want to talk to him. So I picked up the phone, and I called this guy, and I told him, I said, I'd like to just meet with you and see if my son could slide in and hang out with some of the kids. I understand you've got a, you've got a recovery group. And he said, well, here's the deal. Why don't you show up tomorrow, can you come here at one and you bring Sam with you and we'll talk. And I said, okay, that's great. You know, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to help Sam find his group he needs to be with. I call him up. He, of course, he was not happy to go anywhere with me. And um, anyway, we ended up over there. And I knew when we walked in that um, I could tell he had eye contact with several of the young men that were out in the parking lot on skateboards and doing different things. So I think he was familiar with some of the people that were there. And Sam went in and met with the counselor for 30 minutes. And then I went in to meet with the counselor. And the counselor said to me, first thing, I haven't even met him, and basically says, do you think your son's sober? And I said, well, yes. He said, no. No, he's not. He is a heroin addict. And he's higher than a kite right now. Mm. And he said, here's the deal. Um, we have a spot for him. If you want to start here on Monday, we could certainly add him to our group. Of course, we go. I go home, and my husband uh, proceeded to tell my husband the story. And Sam tells us he's been living out his car for three or four days. He was kicked out of the halfway house because they'd found drugs. And we did not know that he had really reached that bottom that he needed to reach. He had also found out the young man that he had used with in um, Hazleton had been found under a bridge dead of an overdose. Sam lost over 20 friends within a six-month period of time that he knew to overdoses. So that's what I think helped him reach that rock bottom. He realized he did not want to get there. Um, that's his story. That's, that's what he would tell. Mm -hmm. So we tell him, basically, you have a choice. Um, we understand you have to move in with us if you're going to be in this um, new rehab. It's a outpatient, so you go for half a day and you have to move in with us. Um, or if you don't want to do that, we'll take you to City Union Mission. We're going to take your car keys. We're going to take your phone. And we'll drop you off there. You can decide if you want to be an addict or if you want to go here. And anyway, he chose to go into this rehab. And um, two and a half years later, um, that was his story, and he graduated from there. Two and a half years. Yes. That's a big difference from 30 days. Yes, it is. And that would be my my suggestion to anyone who has a son or a daughter who's struggling with addiction. You cannot send him away for 30 days and expect to come back and have a sober and clean addict because they need to change their lives dramatically. 
And that's what this outpatient program did. He had to give up his girlfriend. He had to give up all of his friends and start a new life. And that's really what you have to do for a young person to become drug-free. Because the friends and the girlfriend were part of the drug culture? They're all part of it. Okay. They're all a part of it. And how did you feel about him coming to live at home at that point? It was extremely hard. We had had, uh, downsized. We had retired. Um, All the things that we thought we were doing in our life suddenly is now up in the air. So we're thrown into um, having to lock away any liquor, get rid of any drug, any kind of medications. I mean, we, we had a laundry list that they sent home with us. I mean, all the cold medications, everything that you have has to be removed from the house. Um, you know, it changed our lives dramatically. It was a, it was a good change, but it was a difficult change. Um, we also went into a recovery mode where we were requ- required to attend um, four meetings a week with oh, other wow. parents. And my husband and I were really bitter at that point because we feel like we've been through the ringer. We've already, oh my goodness, we, we've already done this rehab thing once before, but this was different. And we found we really enjoyed the meetings after a while. We made really good friends. It was a support group. It was fellowship. Uh, it really helped us understand that we weren't the only ones out there struggling with all of that. I have so many things running through my head right now, and I'm thinking about having where you were in life and, oh, we're empty nesters, retired, we're going to travel, we're going to do this, and then, boom, you did this to save your son. That's right. That's what you do as parents. You love your kids unconditionally. You 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 will do what you need to do. But you also have to learn boundaries, and you, we learned a lot of those things in, in the whole recovery process. You know, you have boundaries. You let things go. You let the little things go. You're not going to nag at them for leaving their socks out in the living room. You're got, not going to nag at them about leaving dishes in the sink. Those are minute things because they are struggling. They have to get on their knees every single day and pray to the Lord to help them make another day mm. as recovered. And so it's, you know, you, you learn a lot. You learn a lot. Backing up, when he was in high school and college, where was he getting the money to buy the fentanyl or the heroin or whatever it was? Well, it's interesting that you ask that. So Sam was always uh, really good at working hard and making money and always had a job. But what we found out was the money that I was sending him for rent was going straight to buying fentanyl. He lived, uh, well, he lived in, a, in the fraternity house for a couple years and then moved into an apartment with a bunch of other really good guys from his fraternity that were not drug addicts. And they didn't know what was going on with Sam that, that final year. But long story short, when he moved into this um, house, they lived in a house, there was you know four or five of them that lived in this four bedroom home that they had. The landlord, I mean, I still to this day, it just, you know, really just irritates me to no end that he didn't pick up the phone and call me. Sam didn't pay rent for two years. Why didn't he kick him out? Why, Why didn't he call us? He had my phone number because I talked to him on the phone before Sam moved in. 
So Sam was taking that $600 a month or whatever it was and applying it straight to drugs. You know, that would have been a big sign to us that something wasn't right if I had known that. Sure. But of course that didn't, that never happened. But Sam was, uh, he worked hard. He he worked, and ironically, you know, and that she asked me about the eating disorder. Um, this is kind of interesting. So he he was actually working with the caterer at the fraternity. He prepared the meals. Oh wow! He was all a part of that food preparation. And anybody that has an eating disorder, food preparation is huge. You prepare right. all this food, but you don't eat anything. Right. So it's a way you control. Your eating, your eating habits as you make food and you're around it. That's what they say a lot of people that go into the restaurant business. Some of them have eating disorders. Mm. It's crazy. They want to be around food, but it's part of that control factor. Mm. So he was getting paid to do that job. He was getting the rent money from you. And was that enough to support his habit? I believe so. Okay. I mean, I have no idea how much. I mean, he, costs, he, he never, he did not steal money. There, there are a lot of stories about addicts that will do whatever they can to right. get their drugs. And, of right. course, Sam was turning his rent money in, so that's what he was using. So, in essence, I guess he was he was somewhat stealing for us. But the interesting thing was after he went through his 12 steps um, in recovery, and one of those is you make amends to anybody that you've done wrong to, he paid back that landlord every dime mm. that he owed him. And he, uh, you know— he, he's tried to make amends for all of those things. I think he, you know, you realize that. But at the time, that getting that drug is the most important thing right. to you. Yes, and I have heard and understood from people that, you know, stealing is a very common thing. Right. You um, will do whatever you can. Yes. And stealing, you know, often children will steal from their parents or their siblings right. or whatever um, just to be able to buy the drugs. And... When he was in the halfway house and he got kicked out because of them finding the drugs, he was working at that time. Yes. How was he able to keep a job? You know, he managed he managed three and a half years of college. Yeah. And as a managing a fentanyl addiction, which I mean, is just horrific. He Sam Sam worked as a salesperson on a car dealership. He was one of their top salespeople. He's just, a, you know, he just has a magnanimous uh, personality, very outgoing. And, of course, the drugs just made him even more hyper. So his ability to be a great salesman was amazing. And how did they reward those kids? They gave them $100 bills mm. on a Saturday morning in a sales deal. Sam would end up with seven $100 bills sometimes for the week of what sales he'd done. And you, that's easy money for him. He'd just head down the street and buy whatever drugs he needed. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, and seeing his picture on your Facebook, he is strikingly good looking. Thank and I you. don't mean that in a weird way. Like, he's, Thank you. he's a good looking kid. Thank you. And so I bet he was really good at selling. He, he was. He was. And so, yeah, an interesting way to be rewarded, though, with a stack yes. of cash. Yes. And then you wonder too. I mean, we always wondered how did he have how did he not like who he was? How how does your your child that you think is well balanced and and um, a good athlete, good looking, um, all of those things not happy with who they are. And you, and you know, no signs. And I would tell other moms that um, you know, a son 
is not going to tell you things. And you and I was open with him. You know, we always were. But we just thought he didn't like us. In college, we just thought he hated us mm. because we would show up for mom's weekend, parents' weekend, dad's weekend. And he was typically a no-show. He was sick. He wasn't feeling well. Our feelings were hurt over and over and over. And we just kind of came to the conclusion, you know, he, he just doesn't like us. And we were older parents. So, of course, I'm going through those things going, we're not young and hip like some of these other parents. <laughs> well, and he gosh. just doesn't want to be with us. Mm. Um, and, you know, because we hadn't had that experience with our older son, but, but we did with him. And um, he spent most of his summers in Fayetteville working, actually at his brother's firm, had a pretty good job. And we thought that was, you know, he was on a good track because he was there and he, his grades were really good. He managed to keep his grades up. Which is incredible. Oh, I know. It's, it's, it's crazy. Did your other son, for whom Sam worked, did he have any idea? No. And this is where um, you get into the effect that addiction has on your family. Uh, he did not know. And he missed the signs. Uh, and you know, how was he supposed to be the caretaker for right. Sam? Uh, and I think he feels guilt, I shame, all of the above, uh, and realized that his brother was hired a kite at his own wedding when he was best man. And I think those are the things that just somewhat really destroy relationships within the family. And it's it was rocky for a long time because, you know, parents, we can— we can um, we can forgive and forget pretty easily, but for siblings, uh, you feel like you've been lied to. You've been, you know, you you haven't been given the truth. So there, that was a rocky relationship that needed to be um, resolved. And my older son would tell you that it's the story of the prodigal son. Mm. Um, you know, here 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 we were so enamored with taking care of Sam and his whole recovery process. We kind of forgot about our other son who'd recently gotten married. And he even told us, You just basically forgot about us. You just you just um you're so wrapped up in Sam and and you know, it's hard to tell them until now they I have a I have a granddaughter. So I, I tried to tell him, you know, until you have a child you really won't understand that unconditional love and how you'll do anything for your child. So we were pretty much wrapped up with all of that recovery process. And it's it's hard as a family to move on. You take it day by day. It is hard as a family. And, and I think that this is where the parallels between addiction and, and mental illness, too, come in, where I can't relate to your story of being a mom of a recovering addict but I can relate to pouring so much into one child that you feel horrifically guilty. And, you know, potentially there's rifts in sibling relationships because of that. Exactly. Or, in, or rifts in the relationship between you as parents and the other child or children who right. are not right. getting, you know, that attention because you are so you, meaning uh, we as moms and dads, are so focused on the child who's in crisis. That's right. You're, you're exactly right. And we were just fortunate. Steve and I were on the same page. Um, we sat in support groups with other, uh, other people who ended up getting divorced. I mean, it's, it's hard because the blame game and you, you get into that. It's hard as a, as a, to be a, 
cohesive support group. Yes. But we were. We were, we were very fortunate that you that are. worked out for us. Yes, you are. And I've always said the same thing about Dan and me, again, on the parallel journey of we were always on the same page. And I'm thankful for that because, yes, not always the case. Right. And how is your relationship with your older son now? It is getting better. Um, I would tell you, you know, we take it day by day. He, and I wouldn't want, would never say that, uh, you know, he's a he's a loving, strong Christian young man, and he loves his brother, and but yet there's there's always going to be a little bit of, a, yeah, I remember when kind of a thing. I believe. I mean, how could how could you not let that go? Um, they're on a good page. They're they're friends. They're buddies. They work out together. They don't live in the same town, mm. so um, it's getting better. That's good, and that's taken time. It will take time. Mm-hmm. Mm. When Sam completed this two and a half year journey, and I have not asked you the name of the program. Do you want to share the name? Sure, I'll be happy to. I didn't know if you wanted me mm-hmm. to or sure. not. Um, he went to Crossroads. Okay, I've heard of it. It's a there. There are wonderful rehabs throughout the city. Um, I had a discussion the other night with a with a young mom who um, I I was at Core uh, giving a testimonial to the recovery community about my my story, and she came up to me and she says, you know, I never went to I, my son. He's still struggling, and uh, and we didn't go to Crossroads because it's not covered by insurance. And I said, well, you know what. A lot of the rehabs uh, are not. You might get a little bit covered, but you have to look at the big picture. And you can't send somebody away for 30 days, in my estimation, and get them back as a recovered addict. It's not going to happen. It's going to take time. And I believe the outpatient worked best for us. My son was also 21, 22 when he went through that process. Um, there's young kids there. There are 15, 16. I think they take 14-year-olds there who are struggling with drug addiction. So they they go to they go to meetings there. They have a meeting at the school where they actually can attend high school or their school, and then they will have their session with Crossroads. Crossroads comes to different schools. So they, they try to work with all different ages of kids. Sam thought he was a little too old for a mm. while. He thought some of the things were childish that they did. The interesting thing is there, they teach kids you can have fun without alcohol. So I'm sure that's true of my son, his high school years. Uh, anything he thought of that was fun had some kind of drugs or alcohol related to it. You realize after you go through addiction recovery that they have triggers, uh, such a thing as a trigger. Sam's, one of his triggers was co- uh, was football games, watching a football game on TV. Hmm. It, uh, he was used to using, drinking, partying, whatever, when there was a football game that you were watching. So you learn that there are things like that, that when your kid is going through recovery, that um, you have to kind of stay away from those things. So he probably doesn't watch football games anymore. Well, he's a Chiefs fan now. I mean, he's okay. six years. He's six years clean and sober. I think he's, um, he's at a good point now where he can, but at the beginning, he could not. Six years. That is a really great milestone. It is. It is. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it's he is one of the lucky ones. Let's talk about that. Okay. And that's really hard because I... Ugh. 
I feel like that too on the other yes, side um, with the mental illness part that Will's one of the lucky ones so far. We're lucky because it could have ended so differently right, for him and for us. And I could be doing a very different thing right now than what I'm doing. How many times did those thoughts or do those thoughts go through your mind? Well, just to share a little bit of facts that are out there right now. 300 addicts die per day of overdoses. Right now, 75% of those are related to fentanyl. So every time I hurt here, the fentanyl that's pouring in over the border and the, the problems we have with fentanyl, you know, I have to thank the Lord that my son has been able to rise above that. And I believe his his experience with fentanyl, he's since he's six years, six years ago, eight years ago, nine years ago when he started using it. The fentanyl was a different breed than perhaps it is today, and they're mixing it with everything else, and so these kids have no idea what they're tapping into. Yes, my son was one of the lucky ones, but yes, it makes me realize that, um, you know, there's a purpose for us to be here, you and me here today. There's a purpose for my son. I think my son will make a huge difference. Um, as I shared with you when, you, when you want me to talk about it, I can talk about what you saw on Facebook and what he's doing now with his ability and being recovered to share with the people out there. Yes. And we will get to that. Okay. That's definitely something that is worth sharing and I want you to share. Okay. Um, okay. And we will get to that. So to answer your question, yes, I, I, it's hard to realize that um, he could have ended up as one of those that lost their life to, to addiction. I've had many parents ask me, or Dan and me, over the years, how does something like this happen to a, and I'm using air quotes, a family like yours? I'm betting that you've heard that same question yes. or a similar That's the question. the stigma of addiction. And I would tell you, just after listening to your uh, your podcast this morning, that um, those kids that are sitting in a high school and they're hearing about mental illness and they're hearing about suicide and all of those things, let me tell you, the druggies also need to hear that. And I hate to use that word. Um, it ups it saddens me because my son was perhaps one of those. They're all in the same boat. They all are struggling with mental illness. And a lot of people don't realize that. They think with drug addiction, just like alcoholism, you take the alcohol away and you've solved the problem. You take the drug away and you've solved the problem. That's not the case. You've right. got to get to the underlying problems that's causing them that originally the, of why they use those drugs. And as a parent, yes, you try to talk to your, to your kids. And yes, my son started his issues with mental illness in, in high school. How would we have known that? Yes, we were open to talking to him. We were at every one of his games. We were very involved as a family. We were, you know, I was a stay-at-home mom. How could I have missed that? <laughs> yep. But you, you can't go down that blame route. And I think things happened the way they were supposed to happen with him. If I had found that he was using drugs in high school, 
he told me, you know, later on when we were talking about it, if you tried to drag me into Crossroads program when I was a junior in high school, senior in high school, I would have gone and joined the army. I would have left the house. I would have I would have been gone from here. So, you know, there's there's kids who will who will address the problems and we'll talk about it. And thank goodness there are people that now there to listen. But I think if somebody had said to my son, are you struggling? He would have gone, no, mm-hmm. no, I'm, I'm good. Mm-hmm. I'm good. I mean, he knew, he knew that he had anxiety. He knew he had those things. He was looking for self-medication to make him feel better. Yeah. So you wonder, does every kid who pulls open, you know, a drink, a, a drinks a, uh, a fifth of vodka or gets that in high school or whatever, are they struggling? They probably are if they're using more than they should of that. I mean, I I don't know. As a parent, how would you know that? I don't know. And our stories are so similar in that way that, you know, we were both stay-at-home moms and involved in our kids' lives, and we didn't know. It makes you feel, I mean, I'm, I'm over it now. I've learned that when you go through addiction counseling, you learn the three C's. You didn't cause it. You can't cure it. And you can't control it. Mm. And you have to just move on and let it go, let it go, let it go. Because they need the help. And they've got to be able to, you've got to be able to help them find that help. But you didn't cause it. And it's good to know that as a parent. Absolutely. And... I say that all the time, too, from the mental illness standpoint, because I think we feel guilty for, exactly you know, oh, well, we must have done something wrong right. that my kid, you know, wanted to die by suicide. But no, we didn't. And I appreciate you sharing those three C's. I haven't heard that you before. Heard that. No, that's really good. There's just so many parallels. There is. You know, with the mental illness and addiction, and I'm just starting to really realize that and learn more about that. What would you tell parents of high schoolers now with these staggering numbers of you know, drug use, fentanyl use? I just read an article the other day about the percentage of deaths because of fentanyl in our teens and 20-somethings and how that has just skyrocketed in the last few years. What would you tell parents if they have any inkling that they have a child who might be dabbling in drugs, alcohol, experimenting with those types of things? Well, you have to be vigilant, and I obviously missed those signs. So um, there are signs that your kids headed down drugs when they start to change friendship groups. Uh, They lose interest in sports or activities that they really enjoyed. Um, Grades dropping. I mean, we had all those things, but we just couldn't connect the dots. So I would tell as a parent today, I think it sounds like more and more social media is huge as to where they're also being able to purchase the drugs with the drug dealers. And I mean, I am, you know, it, hopefully this won't be taken wrong, but I'm so glad they're coming down on TikTok. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just think we've got, you know, you can you can learn how to, how to shoot up 
on any on TikTok. You can learn it on the internet. I mean, we've got to find a way to try to not have all of these things available to our kids. But I think parents need to be vigilant too to see things. Um, if you see foil, if you see a spoon in their room with foil and a lighter, um, you know that's connected to heroin right away. Um, there are things like that that if you find drug paraphernalia, your kids most likely will be smart enough not to leave those things laying around. But if you see it, um, you need you need to get help. Mm-hmm. And where I don't know where you would turn. Mm. I I don't know where I you know it's it's hard for me to say, and I didn't know where to turn once I found it. So. Um, but yes, you have to talk to your kids. I'm so glad you said that. Like, even now, after everything you've been through, you still say, I don't know who I would have turned to. Right. When he was in high school. I remember talking to the football coach. I was worried about his eating disorder. And I knew he was drastically losing weight. He's he's typically a 200 210 pound kid. He's a football player. He dropped to 165. Whoa! His senior year of high school. Wow. I mean, he just he just looked awful. I tried to talk to the to the coach to see if he was eating lunch, if he was missing lunch, what he was doing. I you know I just I just I couldn't get anybody to actually give me any information. Mm-hmm. Or help me, and even my, even the doctors that I saw, even our pediatrician and different doctors that we saw, you know, they just weren't, they were just really were not well. I don't think well skilled on addiction to understand what the signs were or, or how to help. I mean, I'm not trying to blame it on anyone, no. but there was no, there really wasn't any anywhere to go, and I hope there is now mm-hmm. in the Blue Valley schools. I mean, I've been so far removed. Um, from that, that I don't know what, what what's available there now. Is there some place for the kids to turn? Mm. Is there some place for the parents to turn? Mm. I don't know either, but that sounds like an episode that I probably need to have. Exactly. Well, yeah. yeah. And figure out who some of those people are and get that information out. Well, I know there's a drug addiction hotline that you can call. Um, I know that because I've met with that group before. Okay. But there's crisis mode. Um, just like a suicide hotline. Yep, yep. I mean, there there are those out there. Well, and I just actually yesterday interviewed the Johnson County Mental Health. Um, I'm going to botch her title, but she's in charge of 988, which is right. the, the mental health crisis line. And we just kept talking about how you don't have to wait until it's crisis enough. You know, as a parent, as a friend, if you see someone, you talk to someone who's in trouble or you think might be in trouble mental health wise, you can call them and say, hey, here's what's going on. And that person on the other end of the line is trained to to help guide you and navigate you and say, well, here are some options. I hope that there's something like that with the, with the Drug addiction. What is what is that called? The drug crisis line. It, well, it, yeah, you know, I I'm, know. I'm, I'm not sure exactly. And I know there is one, and the rehabs would tell you anybody can call us at any time. But who knows who those places are to call? Yeah, I mean, I how know. do you how do you how do you tap into that? 
I don't know. I maybe I need to, that becomes my <laughs> my journey to try to help out and find those I things. Don't know. But I think I'm going to have to do some investigating and have an episode with whoever those people are so we can get this information out there. I think that would be really good. Because based on the statistics, there are a lot of even middle schoolers who are involved with drugs. That's right. And they're, they're, they're having easy access to it, mm. which is the scary thing. It's on social media. You can, you can make a deal and have somebody come and drop off drugs to you directly. I mean, it's just frightening. I mean, I've, you know, I read the stories. I try to keep up with it in the, the news of what's going on, and it's frightening. To the parents who would say, not my son, not my daughter, what would you say to that? It can happen to anyone. It doesn't matter your social, social economic group. It doesn't matter if you live in Leewood or if you live in Kansas City, Kansas. It can happen to anyone. Let's talk about what Sam is doing now. Okay. Six years. Clean sober, and sober. Which is just awesome. Thank you. I, again, as I said at the beginning of the episode, I read Rhonda's Facebook post, which was about what Sam is doing now. I want you, Rhonda, to tell the listeners about that because it's incredible. Okay. Thank you. I'll be happy to share. So Sam's sobriety date is May 21st of this year, and he will be six years, as we said. And Every year for his sobriety, he has done some kind of a competition event and been able to connect with a firm that he can raise money for that goes directly to that firm that's associated with addiction. This year, he has chosen the top notch. (laughs) He's at the height of his career. He is running an Ironman competition uh, triathlon in Tulsa on May 21st. And he has teamed up with SAFE Project, which stands for Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic. And he, they have put together a whole little website for Sam's um, journey to prepare for this run with opportunity for people, obviously, to donate to SAFE. It's 100% goes to this project. Um, a great firm, and he has chosen to do that. So um, that's what he's got going on. He's, he will tell you if you if you go, and I'm going to share this with you, even though you haven't even asked me, I'm going to tell you this. Uh, I gave my testimonial at CORE last week, and they have a recovery session on Thursday night where they break out into different groups. They have someone give their story, their testimonial, every for 30 minutes prior to the breakout sessions. It is broadcast live, and it's broadcast to all of the other cores within the city. There are five other locations. And um, I was the speaker, and then also have Sam's testimonial that was on my Facebook post. Uh, this is a little short little blib about his um, his. Uh, deal that he's doing in Tulsa, his triathlon. Um, so if you go to core.org and hit recovery, 
and go into testimonials, you can see my testimonial um, that I gave. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well as a link to the SAFE project and what Sam's doing. Thank you. What is he doing? What is Sam doing professionally now? Yes, thanks for asking. So Sam did go on to finish college. Um, He went to UMKC and finished. He has an economics degree. It's an interesting story because there were three other uh, young men who were going through recovery at the same time with Sam, and they all went to UMKC, and they all finished and got their degrees. Um, he is uh, a prof- he is a uh, certified professional trainer, and he does that um, in the mornings as well as doing his runs and bike rides and all the things that he's doing to prepare for this triathlon. And then in the afternoon, he is a property manager. So um, he's engaged to be married. He's going to be mar- married this July. Oh, wow. So his life is on a, on a good path. Um, he would tell you that uh, anyone who is in recovery, that what he found important for him was he had to replace, uh, he had to find something for replacement for his life for, I guess, the addiction, basically. So he came be- addicted to extreme sports. He started out with skateboarding. It got into rock climbing. That's where he met his fiance at a rock climbing gym in Kansas City, Missouri. And then he moved on to biking, swimming, and extreme sports now that he's going into this triathlon. Is this his first triathlon? No, he's done multiple. Wow. He does a marathon about every month. Oh, my gosh. And ironically, he is taking first place in a lot of them. He is 210 pounds, but he's solid muscle. Healthy. So he will tell you the story that these skinny skinny guys running track will, uh, will run past him and fly past him. But he eventually catches up with him because mm. he just keeps a pace. So he would tell you one one day at a time, and this is what he loves his life, and he's in a good place. That is so great to hear. Thank and you. I didn't know he was engaged. <clears throat> no, I didn't so. mean to throw that in there, oh, but no, it's, a, it's awesome. It is super exciting for us. Oh, my yes. goodness. Yes. yes. And wow, what a great, hopeful, hopeful story. Thank you. Thank you. So he likes to give back to, and, um, he, he has run other events, too, and always finds—he found a veterans organization. Um, last year, he did a 4 by 4 by 48 where you run—every uh, four hours, you run four, four miles, and it's 4 by 4 yeah. by 48. He did one of those and raised a bunch of money for a veteran organization to help build the houses, you know, the little houses yes. for the veterans. So he's always chosen a, a really cool organization to support. So we're very proud of him. You should be. Thank you. You mentioned earlier that this journey has changed you. Yes. What do you what do you mean by that? I'm always humbled by it. Uh, in that you realize that this could happen to anyone. And I really want to help out. I want to help any way I can with this whole addiction, mental illness, any of that. So, yes. And I I was required to work the 12 steps along with my son. And the 11th and 12th step is really giving back. And you learn that you that's your job now, is to focus on that and to give back to others. So, yes. I think I'm a better person for it, which is hard to say that I'm a better person because 
my son was an addict, but it did make us better people. Mm. Well, every experience in life shapes us into who we are. That is correct. And I would say the same thing if my son hadn't had the battles with mental illness that he has struggled with. I mean, there's no way I'd be sitting here right now. I don't know what I'd be doing, but it wouldn't be this. And so I think those struggles, again, we can use those and use our pain right, to help other people. Exactly. And so good for you Thank for you. taking the hard and the pain and the sleepless nights and the fear and turning that into something good. Because I know you are helping people. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Is there anything that I have not asked you that you want to make sure and share or tell the audience? No, I think we've pretty much covered it. Okay. I'm happy to be here and hope I can help someone. I know that this episode will help many someones. So thank you again, Rhonda for sharing your story of parenting Sam on this episode of the Just a Mom podcast. After recording this episode with Rhonda, I did a little research on who to call if you are concerned about substance abuse for yourself or someone you love. You can call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. You can also call 988, the Suicide Crisis Line. Either of these numbers will be able to connect you and direct you to get the help that you need for yourself or someone else. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds that keep covering up the sun. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful. Thanks again for listening to Just a Mom.